Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First off, a big thank you to Lee Carlos Cunningham, who guest co-hosted the last episode of this show and did a fantastic job. As a reminder, you can catch Lee on the Raw is Nitro podcast, where he analyzes episodes of Raw and Nitro that went head-to-head against each other, and he determines who won on that particular night. So please be sure to subscribe to that podcast, because it's friggin' quality, and I will actually be making an appearance on it once his timeline reaches WrestleMania 12. Be on the lookout for that. And on a related note, I want to let you, the fans of this show, know something very important. The Raw Attitude Podcast now has its own mascot, and that mascot is based off of a conversation I had on the previous episode with Lee. When we were discussing Raw, Lee had noted that The Undertaker executed a Feymasser, which was reminiscent of Billy Gunn's moveset. I then said we should get hashtag Billy Gundertaker trending. Well, as it turns out, friend of the show William Rankin from the New Blood Rising podcast actually did create a photoshopped image of The Undertaker's face over Billy Gunn's body, and it's amazing. You can see that image on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, so be sure to head over there and check that out, because it may very well change your life. And if you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the New Blood Rising podcast so you can hear some great insight from William, fellow friend of the show Martin Dixon, who designed our logo, Jason Kiesler, and Charlie Stabile. They're currently recapping every ECW pay-per-view ever, but also be sure to go back and listen to their older episodes where they recapped every WCW pay-per-view from the Vince Russo era, as well as every pay-per-view covering the Invasion storyline in the WWF in 2001. Awesome stuff. Also, some breaking news, William Rankin will be returning to the Raw Attitude podcast for our SummerSlam 1998 episode, so stay tuned for that, because it will be fantastic. Alright, so with that being said, let's get down to business. However, before we dive into Raw, I have to point out something very interesting which came up when I clicked on this episode in the WWE Network. Before I played the episode, a screen popped up which said, quote, The following program is presented in its original form. It may contain some content or insensitive dialogue that does not reflect WWE's corporate views. WWE characters are fictitious and do not reflect the personal lives of the actors portraying them. Viewer discretion is advised. Another warning then popped up which said, What you are about to watch contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for viewers under 18. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. I was then given one more screen, which said that this episode is rated TVMA for language, sexual content, and violence. So we have a couple firsts here on the Raw Attitude Podcast. This is the first episode of Raw in our timeline so far, which has been rated TVMA, and also the first one where we are advised that it may contain insensitive dialogue. 
I don't know about you, but that just made me about 20 times more interested in watching this episode to see what exactly is so objectionable. So with that being said, let's get into Raw. It is Monday, July 20th, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from Broome County Arena in Binghamton, New York. Typically, this is the part where I tell you which pay-per-views have occurred in this arena, but Binghamton has actually never hosted a WWF or WCW pay-per-view. A few episodes of Raw, Superstars, and Wrestling Challenge, but that's about it. Apologies to our fans in Binghamton, but the WWE just doesn't see you as a very important venue. Sorry. Right off the bat, we break from the norm a little bit, as we do not open with a recap of last week's show. Instead, we just kick right into the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs tonight include Triple H, Suck Us, IP in the Shower, and perhaps the saddest one in recent memory, a sign which says, Life's Jobber with an arrow pointing downward. I feel like that guy may need a hug. Jim Ross informs us that it's going to be a controversial night, so it certainly seems like he's setting the tone for the TVMA wackiness to come. We begin with Vince McMahon walking to the ring to his usual chorus of boos, and he must not be in a very good mood because he angrily snatches the microphone from Tony Chimmel's hand. Mr. McMahon says he wants to reflect on The Undertaker's actions over the past few weeks, and then we get a close, zoomed-in shot of two young kids holding up a sign which says, Vince sucks a fat one. Lately, it seems like Kevin Dunn is really enjoying finding the most offensive signs and featuring them prominently during the broadcast. Bravo. Vince cues up footage from a few weeks ago where The Undertaker dressed as Kane, and he speculates as to how Taker managed to do that. Amusingly, Vince mockingly says, Did The Undertaker go down to the Sears men's store and say, I'll have a Kane suit, please? No, instead, Vince believes that Taker and Kane are now in cahoots with each other. To prove his point, Vince then shows some more footage from last week, including Taker telling Vince to go to hell, Taker attempting to count the pinfall for Kane in the main event tag team title match, and Kane attacking Austin from behind instead of his own brother. Vince then asks The Undertaker to come to the ring right now because he's going to give him one more chance to answer him as to whether or not he and Kane are working together. Taker does indeed come to the ring, and surprisingly, Vince takes him to task. He says that Taker hurt his feelings last week by telling him to go to hell, and he did not appreciate it, considering the fact that he is the one responsible for making Taker into a superstar. He then says he's not going to tolerate The Undertaker's disrespect anymore, but he is willing to work with him. If Taker wants to be a champion, he's going to have to cooperate with Vince, and so Mr. McMahon is giving him that chance. All he has to do is answer him as to whether or not he and Kane are in cahoots. Instead, however, The Undertaker remains silent, so Vince then says he has to teach him a lesson about revenge. With that in mind, tonight Taker will have to compete in a handicap match against the WWF Tag Team Champions, Mankind, and his own brother Kane. Taker is about to leave the ring, but then Vince can't help himself, and he ends up getting a little too big for his britches. And now, Undertaker, you may take your leave. McMahon's vindictive, in case you didn't know, JR. I said leave. Uh, wait a minute. Just before you go, just one thing I want to get off my chest. It's what you said to me last Monday. Undertaker, you can go to hell. Oh, my. 
As you might expect, that proves to be a mistake. The Undertaker then proceeds to chokeslam Vince, which Jim Ross incorrectly refers to as a tombstone, and the boss hilariously kicks his feet in the air as he goes up for the ride. I feel like more people should sell it that way because it looked pretty great. We then see that Mr. McMahon is holding his neck and writhing in pain on the canvas, but don't worry, he'll give up on selling that neck injury by the end of the night. Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Sergeant Slaughter all run out to the ring to back up the boss, but Patterson gets taken out with a punch, while Briscoe and Slaughter both end up taking choke slams. Taker heads backstage as the commentators play up the fact that he snapped and went too far. Amusingly, after The Undertaker leaves and Mr. McMahon is being helped out of the ring, he falls off the ring steps and lands on Patterson, which I think was intentional, but Vince did a good job of making it look accidental. Briscoe then blames Patterson for being clumsy, so Patterson calls him a son of a bitch, takes off his jacket, and throws it at Briscoe. Clearly, there's a bit of trouble in paradise for the corporation. We then cut backstage where we see all five members of the Nation of Domination talking amongst themselves. Apparently, one of them will face Triple H for the European title tonight, and they better figure out which one, because that match is right now. Hunter comes to the ring with China and does his let's get ready to suck it routine for the first time in a while, and for some reason, he takes a pot shot at Jim Ross by saying, for the thousands in attendance, the millions watching at home, and for one fat ring announcer in a black hat. Not sure what the point of that was, maybe Hunter just doesn't like JR's barbecue sauce. After a commercial break, we find out which member of the nation will oppose Triple H for the European title, and it is the chest protector-wearing D'Lo Brown, who comes to the ring along with The Rock. D'Lo slams Triple H to the canvas to begin the match, and then he gives us a few of his signature mannerisms as he proceeds to climb the turnbuckle, shake his head back and forth, and yell, I think you better recognize, at the crowd. It's still very early in his WWF in-ring career, but he's definitely attempting to come up with some aspects of his character to make himself stand out. About a minute later, Hunter clotheslines D'Lo over the top rope to the floor. With referee Jimmy Corderas distracted by The Rock, China comes over and gets in D'Lo's face, and, because hitting a woman is completely fine in the Attitude Era, D'Lo takes a swing at China. Yikes. Fortunately, she ducks, and then she nails D'Lo in the face with a forearm, knocking him to the ground. A few minutes later, with Corderas distracted again, The Rock gained some payback by grabbing Triple H's foot from outside the ring, so China came over and shoved Rock into the ring post. This caused Mark Henry to come out from backstage, so China grabbed a chair to confront him. Instead of refereeing the match, Corderas left the ring and got between them, which allowed The Rock to sneak into the ring and hit Triple H with a rock bottom. D'Lo then covered Hunter, Corderas re-entered the ring, counted the pinfall, and yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, your new WWF European champion is D'Lo Brown. When Corderas gives D'Lo the belt, he bugs his eyes out of his head as though he couldn't believe that he was the champion, and frankly, I think the crowd was really surprised by this too. Since the European title was introduced in the WWF in February of 1997, there have only been five men who have held the belt. Veterans, the British Bulldog, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Owen Hart, and now D'Lo Brown. Also, up to this point, D'Lo has basically been a glorified jobber since he entered the WWF a year and a half ago, but it just goes to show how one loaded chest protector can change your entire fortunes. And awesomely, D'Lo also exclaims, I'm the champ of Europe, as he holds the belt. Clearly, he's enjoying the moment. After a quick commercial break, we see an angry Triple H backstage along with X-Pac. The Rock will face X-Pac later tonight with his Intercontinental title on the line, and Pac then goes all 1998 on us with this promo. 
rock? You ain't gonna smell what I'm cooking. You're not even gonna see it coming. Bitch! <sighs> well, I guess that was the style at the time. Also, I will make a quick note of one thing. Between D'Lo winning the belt and X-Pac calling Rock a biatch, the WWE Network edited out a commercial for a brand new show which will begin airing on the USA Network on August 2nd, and that show is called Sunday Night Heat. If you're a fan of jobber matches, be sure to mark your calendar. Up next, it's time for the Brawl for All, and boy oh boy, do we have some interesting circumstances here, because your matchup is Quebecer Pierre versus a man who is making his debut in the WWF, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. That's right, Dr. Death is debuting in a shoot fight instead of a wrestling match. And on that note, I'm going to take a moment here to read a passage from Bob Hawley's autobiography, The Hardcore Truth, where he discusses Dr. Death's entry into the WWF. Jim Ross, who was in charge of talent, had been lobbying to bring his buddy Dr. Death, Steve Williams, in for a long time, but creative didn't know how to do it. Steve had wrestled in Japan for the majority of his career and had a reputation as a genuine badass, so they figured they would introduce him in the Brawl for All. He'd walk through everybody, and boom, they'd have a credible guy they could leapfrog over everybody else to put up against Austin in the main events. Everybody backstage thought it was a bunch of bullshit. JR was shoving Steve down everybody's throats, saying he was going to destroy everybody. Nobody had a problem with Steve before, but JR was putting him over so often that the boys resented him and hoped he'd get knocked out. Well, I guess we'll see how that plays out. Also, I don't want to say there was a bit of favoritism going on here, but Dr. Death's first Brawl for All opponent is Quebecer Pierre, a man who is legitimately 90% blind in his right eye and who is actually wearing an eye patch for this fight. Not only that, but while on commentary, JR actually tells the viewers that Pierre may be faking his legitimate injury, and I'm going to play that clip for you right here. And apologies in advance because you can hear the referee explaining the brawl for all rules in the background. Well, folks, uh, there's some speculation regarding the uh, Pierre's uh, eye patch and the fact that uh, he may or may not have vision in only one eye. Some folks say it's a little bit of a camouflage. I'm not uh, really sure. 10 points for a knockdown. I mean, you think he can see through that? Count. No way! Gentlemen, go to your corner when the bell rings, come out fighting. I'm not Good saying luck. that. It takes courage in, in, any, in any environment to get into this uh, sort of competition. How would you like that if you were Pierre? You legitimately almost lose your vision in one eye, but Jim Ross tells people it may be bullshit because he wants to make it seem like his fellow University of Oklahoma alumnus, Dr. Death, is about to fight someone who is more of a threat than they actually are. Good Lord. Something tells me that if Dr. Death had been matched up against Zach Gowan, JR would have been on commentary saying, well, some people think he may actually be faking that leg injury. So how would this fight go down? Let's get into it. Round one was dominated pretty thoroughly by Dr. Death, as you may expect, since, well, he's fighting a man with one eye. He managed to take Pierre down twice and land a few jabs to his face, so it seemed like a pretty easy call to say he won the round. Pierre seemed to run out of gas pretty quickly in round two, so Dr. Death actually started taunting him as if to say, come on, give me your best shot. Pierre swung away, but Dr. Death got the better of him with a punch, knocking out his mouth guard. By the end of the round, Pierre was huffing and puffing like he had just run the Quebec City Marathon. At the end of the round, the WWF's unofficial results showed Dr. Death ahead by a score of 35 to 5. Not exactly a nail-biter. When round three began, both guys just started throwing haymakers at each other, but again, Dr. Death got the better of the deal. Toward the end of the round, Pierre just went into a corner and turned his back as if to say, please just leave me alone. 
The referee asked if he could continue, and the answer was apparently no, so the fight was waved off with only seven seconds left. Your winner by TKO, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Very impressive to defeat a one-eyed man in an ass-kicking contest. So will JR's boy Dr. Death build on this momentum and win the entire brawl for all? Stay tuned in the coming weeks to find out. Also some sad news. This brawl for all fight marks the final Monday Night Raw appearance for Carl Ouellette, a.k.a. Pierre. As part of the Quebecers, he won the WWF Tag Team titles on three separate occasions, along with Jacques Rougeau, and he also competed under the pirate gimmick of Jean-Pierre Lafitte in 1995. And because he has had such an eventful run with the company, I think it's only fair that we induct Carl Ouellette into Wrestler Heaven. For the record, unlike Jim Ross, I always believe that your eye injury was legitimate. Next up, we get footage from last week's episode of Raw, where Val Venus debuted his new adult movie, Land of the Rising Venus, with his co-star being Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. We cut back to the arena where Kayentai, Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, and Yamaguchi-san are all at ringside. Yamaguchi-san has a microphone, and for some reason, he is wearing his necktie around his forehead. He says that his wife has disgraced him, and then he helpfully spells out the word punishment for us to let us know what's coming. He tells Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, who he now calls Kiyoko, to get in the ring where he then pulls out a paddle. He orders his wife to get on her hands and knees and crawl between his legs where he will then paddle her ass. Jerry Lawler helpfully informs us that, quote, In the Orient, Japanese women are supposed to be subservient to their husbands. If they ever do anything to bring disgrace to their husbands, then they have to be punished. And suddenly, I'm starting to get the idea of why they had to put that disclaimer at the beginning of the show about insensitive dialogue that does not reflect WWE's corporate views. However, before Yamaguchi-san can paddle his wife's ass like a fraternity pledge during Hell Week, Val Venus runs to the ring, grabs the paddle, and proceeds to whack each member of Kayentai with it. He then carries Kyoko backstage, because clearly, when I think of Val Venus, the first word which comes to mind is gentleman. After a commercial break, our next match is Disciples of Apocalypse member Skull, accompanied by 8-Ball and Paul Ellering, versus LOD 2000 member Animal, who is strangely not accompanied by Hawk. Animal looks around as though he was expecting Hawk to show up, so the DOA jump him from behind and throw him into the steel steps before the bell can even ring. Hilariously, the DOA then spread Animal's legs apart, and Ellering begins to rev up his motorcycle as though he was about to drive it right into Animal's balls. 
However, at that point, Hawk does finally show up, and he starts beating on Skull and 8-Ball for a bit, but they end up overwhelming him and knocking him down on the ramp. Eventually, WWF officials break things up, and we go to commercial with the DOA having gotten the better of LOD 2000. Also, I believe the match was ruled a no contest since it never actually took place. Oh, and in case you're wondering, the answer is yes. This is the beginning of that angle involving Hawk. If you're not sure what I mean, stay tuned in the coming weeks because the WWF is about to hit a new low in their pursuit of tastelessness. Up next, Jeff Jarrett heads to the ring, accompanied by greatest character ever, Tennessee Lee, and finally, he actually has Southern Justice with him as well. If you recall, the Godwins were repackaged as bodyguards for Double J seven weeks ago, and they only came to the ring with him once in that time frame, despite the fact that Jarrett had quite a few matches on Raw. Also, speaking of tastelessness, just like Kevin Dunn did a few weeks ago at King of the Ring, he finds a sign in the crowd which says, Double J, ain't he gay, and he zooms right in on it. To say it was a different time would be an understatement. His opponent tonight is Steve Blackman, who gets halfway down the aisle, sees all four men in the ring, and then heads right backstage. Jarrett tells the referee to award him the victory by forfeit, but instead, Blackman's music plays again, and we see that he has brought some friends with him to even the odds. Ken Shamrock and Dan the Beast Severn. Holy shit. Blackman, Shamrock, and Severn together, if that isn't the ultimate badass dream team, I don't know what is. The match was actually pretty quick, and it seemingly ended out of nowhere when Blackman reversed a figure-four attempt by Jarrett by pushing him into the turnbuckle. Blackman then bounced off the ropes and hit Double J with a bicycle kick, which was enough to score the three count, even though Jarrett was basically right next to the ring ropes while he was being pinned. After the match, Owen Hart ran down to ringside and ambushed Shamrock from behind, throwing him into the steel steps. Blackman went over to check on Shamrock, but Severn instead walked by them both and headed backstage. We're told that Severn will be the special guest referee this Sunday when Owen and Shamrock fight in the Hart family dungeon in Calgary. This is the first time this match has been mentioned, and you would think they would want to provide more than six days of build-up for that, but no, apparently not. Since the match is taking place in the Hart dungeon, I was also kind of hoping they would tease that Brett would do a run-in, but no such luck. We then cut backstage where Michael Cole is running after The Undertaker, who is holding his coat and luggage and seemingly exiting the arena, even though he's booked to face Kane and Mankind tonight. After a commercial break, Cole says The Undertaker did have some words for him, I'll see you Sunday at Fully Loaded. Since they didn't show that exchange on camera, I feel like Cole just made that up because I doubt Taker would actually bother giving him the time of day. And now we cut back to the arena, where Dr. Death's biggest fan, Jim Ross, is in the ring, and he brings out the WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, to his usual massive pop from the crowd. JR asks Austin how he feels about teaming with The Undertaker this Sunday at Fully Loaded to take on the WWF Tag Team Champions Kane and Mankind. Austin says that Jim Ross has bad breath, and then JR just leaves, so I'm wondering what the point of having him out there in the first place was. Austin says he doesn't know if it's going to be two versus two or one versus three, but either way, he's heading to Fully Loaded to whip some ass. He then goes on to say he isn't sure if The Undertaker left the arena tonight because he didn't want to fight Kane, or if he left because he didn't want to be screwed by Vince McMahon. Stone Cold says that Vince deserves to get screwed, and sure enough, that brings Mr. McMahon out from backstage, along with Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter. Vince takes offense to Austin saying he should be screwed, so instead of The Undertaker facing Kane and Mankind in a handicap match tonight, it will be Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
Surprisingly, Austin says he has already beaten both of them recently, so he isn't going to fight them tonight, even though he did just say a few minutes ago he wouldn't mind fighting one versus three this Sunday. As you might expect, Vince doesn't take too kindly to Austin refusing him, so he says that if Stone Cold doesn't compete here tonight, he will strip Austin of the WWF title and hand it over to The Undertaker, even though he hates Taker too. Kind of an odd statement. I mean, I understand taking the title off Austin, but why would he just give it to Taker? Just because he's the number one contender? I mean, he chokeslammed you earlier tonight, Vince. Why not just give it to Kane instead? Very strange. Very strange. So needless to say, Austin agrees to the match, but he says that once he finishes with Kane and Mankind, he's going to head backstage and, quote, beat the shit out of Vince. However, unlike last week, they actually censor the word shit, so this episode may be TVMA, but clearly not even mature audiences can handle the S word. After a commercial break, we get footage from two weeks ago where Jason Sensation impersonated Owen Hart, and then we get more footage from last week where Jason imitated him again, but that proved to be a mistake as Owen then ran to the ring, slapped Jason in the face, and then put him in the sharpshooter. We then segue back to the arena, where Owen is set to take on Farouk, who is wearing a red, purple, and yellow singlet for some reason. A few minutes into the match, the fans started taunting Owen by chanting that he was a nugget, so Owen awesomely grabbed the microphone from Tony Chimmel during the match, told the fans to shut their mouths, and said that he was not, in fact, a nugget. The fans continued taunting Owen throughout the match, and he would frequently yell back at them. It was pretty awesome to see how over Owen was with the crowd at this point, even though he was saddled with a mid-card gimmick that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Great stuff. Eventually, Farouk went for a second rope leg drop, but Owen moved out of the way. He then locked Farouk in the sharpshooter for the clean submission victory, even though, much like Jeff Jarrett earlier tonight, Farouk was basically right next to the ropes and probably could have easily reached them. Immediately after Owen got the win, Ken Shamrock ran out from backstage in an attempt to get some payback for Owen attacking him earlier tonight. However, Owen managed to run out of the ring and hurdle the barricade as Shamrock chased him off through the crowd, presumably all the way back to Calgary for their dungeon match on Sunday. We then cut backstage where Kane, Mankind, and Paul Bearer are standing by. Jim Ross asked them whose side The Undertaker is on, to which Bearer answers that Kane would have showed us whose side he was on if Taker had stuck around the arena, but instead The Undertaker tucked his tail and ran away. Or maybe he just went back to Sears to buy himself a new cane suit. Who knows? Who knows? Up next, we go back to the arena, where marvelous Mark Marrow and Jacqueline are heading to the ring. Jackie grabs a mic and says she is definitely going to win their bikini contest this Sunday at Fully Loaded, because Sable won't be able to lose enough pounds by then. She says Sable could have some liposuction done by then, but she would risk having the fat removed from the wrong places. Wink, wink. With that in mind, Jackie will allow Sable to come to the ring right now and raise her hand in victory so she doesn't have to be humiliated on Sunday. Sure enough, this brings out Sable at the top of the ramp, and she's wearing a horrendous-looking dress that kind of looks like a tablecloth you would use at a picnic. Even Lawler calls her out by asking if she's wearing a maternity dress. Sable then proceeds to call Jackie a tramp, and she walks to the ring to confront her. And then, well, I'm just going to play the next clip, because what Jacqueline says to Sable here strikes me as rather odd. Look at that big fat cow! Oh! That tampon could sleep a family of four! <laughs> Not nice. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Jackie just said that Sable's tampon could sleep a family of four. That is what she said, right? I just want to make sure I have that correct, because that is certainly a new one for me. 
Goodness gracious. Anyway, Sable then tells Jackie that her body keeps men up all night long, so Jackie asks her to prove it. Sure enough, Jacqueline then rips off that hideous-looking dress, leaving Sable in her underwear. Sable fights back by grabbing Jackie by her hair and throwing her out of the ring, and, well, I'm going to play the audio of what Jerry Lawler says during this part, because I believe this moment marks the beginning of the ridiculously creepy, over-the-top Jerry Lawler that we will all come to know and not love. Honestly, that little scream that the king lets out at the end there kind of makes me a little bit worried that he may have soiled his royal tights. Good lord. So Sable then leaves the ring and walks back up the ramp, but while the camera is focusing on her, we completely miss the fact that Edge snuck into the ring and hit Marrow with a DDT. What a start to Edge's career, huh? He almost paralyzes a man in his first match, then the camera completely misses him executing a move during his second ever in-ring appearance. He then heads right back through the crowd to a noticeable Edge chant, so at least some people appreciated a sneak attack. I think more of them were probably focusing on Sable's ass, but hey, it's progress. When we return from commercial for the second week in a row, it's time for an appearance from Shawn Michaels, and it looks like he actually got a crappy-looking haircut in between this show and the previous one. He poses for a bit, and then, just like last week, he joins the commentary team. On the previous episode of Raw, HBK did commentary for the entire two-hour show, but maybe they decided to cut back on his time since he said the word shit on live TV last week. Whoops. And then, in a testament to how well the Brawl for All has been received, we see footage from Scorpio vs. 8-Ball, which apparently happened before Raw even went on the air. That's right, they are now relegating part of the Brawl for All to the pre-show. Oh, and in case you were wondering, Scorpio was declared the winner by judge's decision, so fill out your brackets accordingly. We then cut backstage where the Nation of Domination are standing by. Jim Ross reminds The Rock that Triple H promised that Rocky would not leave with the Intercontinental title tonight, so we get a pretty standard Rock promo where he checks off most of the boxes. Know your role, shut your mouth, people's champ, jabronis, smell what The Rock is cooking, people's eyebrow. Just like Sinatra, The Rock knows that you gotta play all the hits. After commercial break, it is indeed time for The Rock to defend his intercontinental title against X-Pac, and amusingly, Tony Chimmel informs us during the ring introductions that this match has a 60-minute time limit. Never mind the fact that Raw only has about half an hour to go and we still have the main event left, this match will go one hour if it has to. Although, honestly, I think I probably would watch a Rock vs. Pac Iron Man match around this time, but maybe that's just me. The Rock enters first, and he is accompanied by the other members of the nation, including D'Lo Brown, who is happily gloating with his newly won European title. However, when it's time for X-Pac to enter, the other members of DX run to the ring as well, and we have us another DX nation brawl. Noticeably absent, however, is the Road Dog, who Jim Ross previously told us had been sent home earlier today because he was sick. 
I'm not sure if sick in this case means high as shit, but that's just my guess. WWF officials fill the ring, and then, when we come back from another ad break, we see that order has been restored, so our intercontinental title match is on as scheduled. The only person now remaining at ringside is China, which would appear to favor X-Pac. This was a really solid match, and it mostly consisted of The Rock dominating X-Pac, but not being able to put him away. Eventually, X-Pac managed to turn the tide and hit Rock with the X-Factor, but he was too exhausted to make the cover. And even better, Shawn Michaels on commentary decided to refer to X-Pac's signature move as something a bit more interesting. Well, I'll tell you, I'm impressed with X-Pac here tonight. Whoa, look at this! Back on the up and... Whoa! Oh, that's what did it for him last week! What a move! Variation of the carpet muncher there. And if you're not familiar with the term carpet muncher, feel free to consult UrbanDictionary.com. I almost feel like HBK is intentionally trying to sabotage his own commentary career right now, and it's a beautiful thing. Getting back to the match, X-Pac threw Rock over the top rope to the floor, and then Pac faked a knee injury so referee Tim White would have to check on him. Meanwhile, as soon as Rock rolled back into the ring, China grabbed the Intercontinental title and smacked him in the head with it, knocking Rock to the canvas. X-Pac made the cover for the one, the two, and not the three. The crowd completely bought that as the finish, but Rock managed to get a shoulder up. Continuing on, The Rock attempted to whip X-Pac into the opposite turnbuckle, but Pac reversed it, accidentally causing The Rock to run into referee Tim White and knock him to the canvas. With White unconscious, D'Lo Brown ran out from the crowd and climbed to the top rope, but Triple H followed D'Lo to the ring and crotched him on the turnbuckle before he could hit a frog splash to X-Pac. Triple H then hit The Rock with a pedigree, and China began to revive Tim White. X-Pac went for the cover, and Tim White began to make the three count, but then, in a move I have never seen, before White could count to three, fellow referee Jimmy Corderas ran out from backstage and yanked White by the foot before he could count to three. Corderas then informed White that Triple H had interfered in the match, meaning your winner by disqualification and still WWF Intercontinental Champion, is The Rock. Angered by the decision, China then hit Corderas with a forearm, knocking him outside the ring. Triple H then began putting the boots to The Rock, and China started beating on D'Lo, so the other members of the nation headed to the ring, followed by the other members of DX, and yet again, we got another brawl between the two factions. Eventually, order was once again restored, with DX standing tall in the ring. And then, well, we got what I assume was one of the reasons why this episode of Raw was rated TVMA. With DX now celebrating in the ring, the camera cut to a busty blonde woman in the crowd wearing a tank top and holding a sign pointing downward toward her breasts, which said, Hey DX, suck these. And for the record, yes, I am 99.9% sure that she was a planted fan. Triple H then encouraged her to lift up her top, and she obliged by flashing her bra. However, Hunter requested for her to go the extra mile, so sure enough, she did indeed lift up her bra as well, exposing her breasts. However, before you go searching for this episode of Raw on the WWE Network, allow me to dampen your enthusiasm by letting you know that yes, they do censor her boobs, so don't take the Vaseline out of your sock drawer just yet. Now, I also have to point out that Jerry the King Lawler has had some creepy sound bites over the years, but when this incident happens, he flips the fuck out as though he has never seen a woman's chest before. Take a listen to his reaction and marvel over the fact that he somehow did not suffer a heart attack on air until 14 years later. Oh my gosh! Oh, JR! Look at the 
after listening to Lawler's commentary tonight, I suddenly feel like I need to take a shower to cleanse myself. Ooh. Also, I'm not complaining about Triple H getting a woman to show her body, but I will make one minor quibble. Hunter lost his European title earlier in the night, and then he cut an angry, spit-filled promo, saying that The Rock would not leave the arena with the Intercontinental title. Cut to this moment when X-Pac basically gets screwed out of the belt, and, instead of being even more pissed off, he's joking around and asking women to flash their breasts. I get that it's completely in character for DX to do that stuff, but Hunter essentially just no-sold the entire angle that was built up throughout the show. But then again, I do understand the counterpoint. Boobs. Fair enough. And now it's time for our main event, WWF Champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus WWF Tag Team Champions Kane and Mankind in a handicap match. As soon as the match begins, we see that it's actually contested under Tornado Tag rules, meaning that both Kane and Mankind can be in the ring at the same time without having to tag each other in. We also occasionally get a split screen where we see Vince McMahon backstage cheering on the tag team champs as they take it to Austin. Stone Cold managed to take control early on by whipping Kane into the ring steps, and then, when Mankind put Austin in the mandible claw, he reversed it by slamming the back of Mankind's head into the ring post twice. I repeat, Mick Foley took two unprotected shots to the back of the head against the metal ring post in a match which lasts less than five minutes. Just when you think Mick might try to tone down the crazy bumps after that Hell in a Cell match, he does something like that. Yeesh. Anyway, even though Austin was outnumbered, the majority of the match consisted of him getting the better of both Kane and Mankind. The tag team champions managed to regain the momentum when Austin booted Kane in the stomach and went for the stunner, but instead Kane whipped him toward Mankind, who ended up botching a clothesline. At that point, wouldn't you know it, the Undertaker walked toward the ring with a chair, so I guess he decided to return to the arena after all. Interestingly, Taker actually got on the ring apron and stood in Austin's corner, so it looks like this may now be a tag team match after all. Eventually, Kane grabbed Austin by the throat as though he was about to chokeslam him. Austin tried to escape, and both men worked their way toward Austin's corner, where the Undertaker was standing. Taker then lifted the chair up, and it certainly appeared he was aiming for Stone Cold, but Austin ducked, and Taker clocked Kane with the chair instead. The referee called for the bell at that point, which is strange because I assumed there would be no disqualifications in this match, but sure. Austin then leveled Foley with a sick chair shot, and when The Undertaker entered the ring, Austin nailed him with a chair shot too. The show went off the air with Stone Cold celebrating on the entrance ramp as The Undertaker, Kane, and Mankind were all left unconscious in the ring from their respective chair shots. Austin and The Undertaker are supposed to team up this Sunday at Fully Loaded, but Stone Cold just clobbered his own tag team partner with a chair, so how can they possibly coexist? Well, I guess you'll just have to find out next week. In the meantime, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the hype like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlin. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Last week, a live episode of Raw narrowly defeated the post-Bash at the Beach episode of Monday Nitro 4.65 to 4.46. This week, Raw was back to being pre-taped, meaning the results of the event would be available on the internet six days in advance. 
So would WCW be able to regain the momentum and score a ratings victory? Well, no. Even though this episode of Raw was pre-taped, the rating actually increased to an excellent 4.99 this week, while the live episode of Nitro only managed a 4.37. Somehow, despite the odds, the WWF was actually pretty successful in generating interest for Fully Loaded, even though it's a lower-tier pay-per-view where the company's top belt will not even be on the line. So with that in mind, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro instead of Raw. Stevie Ray defeated Johnny Boone. Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Sick Boy. After that match, in one of the more cringeworthy moments in recent months, Eric Bischoff ramped up the NWO's feud with late-night host Jay Leno by ripping off Leno's jokes from the previous episode of The Tonight Show as fake laughter was dubbed in. They got this crazy millionaire in Colombia, South, you know, South America, you people know where that is, that is pledging to give Viagra to every man in the country for free. You know, with their economy, I guess you could say they're hard up for cash. <laughs> this is really, this is, this is such a ripoff. Give me five. Uh, hey, before, before we go, I know you heard this one. The state of California is putting a new tax on oversized vehicles. I hear they're going to start with Jay Leno's chin. Now, it's bad enough that you have a guy who isn't a stand-up comedian doing a monologue on a wrestling show, but the worst part is that this went on for over five minutes. If you think that doesn't sound like a long time, I challenge you to watch that whole segment because it will end up feeling three times as long. There's heat, and then there's go-away heat. I'll let you figure out which category this fell under. Continuing on, Yuji Nagata defeated Perry Saturn. Scott Hall and the Giant defeated Sting and Kevin Nash to win the WCW Tag Team titles. The Great Muda and Masahiro Chono defeated Disco Inferno and Alex Wright. Ultimo Dragon defeated Tokyo Magnum. Scott Norton defeated Jim Powers. Conan defeated Eddie Guerrero by disqualification. Kurt Hennig defeated Lex Luger. And in your main event, Bret Hart defeated Diamond Dallas Page to win the WCW United States Championship. Looking at that card, I can totally see why their rating dropped, even up against a pre-taped Raw. Doesn't seem like the greatest show, even with the two title changes. I'm not sure if a Jay Leno feud will do much to help their ratings, but, spoiler alert, a former WWF main eventer will be joining their roster very soon, and he will help swing the ratings right back in their direction. Who will it be? If you answered Quebecer Pierre, well, then you would be incorrect. It's not him. And so let's wrap it all up with the Raw synopsis. So first of all, let me just say that I don't think this episode of Raw was worthy of the TVMA rating at all. I feel like we'll see plenty of episodes of the show in the future with much more racy content, which will receive the more tame TV-14 rating. I assume it was given the TVMA for the insensitive Yamaguchi-san segment Sable being stripped to her underwear, and the fan in the crowd flashing her censored breasts. But, spoiler alert, we're going to get much worse content than this, particularly once 1999 rolls around and they turn the crazyometer up to 11. As for the show overall, it was a very entertaining episode of Raw, with quite a few quality matches for a change. Rock vs. X-Pac was a really fun match, despite the screwy finish. Owen Hart somehow managed to even carry Farouk to a good match. 
the main event tornado tag was a solid brawl, and D'Lo Brown beating Triple H for the European title was quite good, too. And on that note, there weren't a whole lot of noteworthy segments on the show, but perhaps the most important moment was that D'Lo title victory. Up until recently, D'Lo was basically an afterthought and the low man on the totem pole in the Nation of Domination, but his adoption of the chest protector gimmick and his full-on embrace of the European title will really end up catapulting him from lowly jobber to solid mid-carder. Well-deserved, in my opinion. As for the show as a whole, I would definitely give it a thumbs up. Fully Loaded is not one of the more memorable pay-per-views, aside from, well, one particular moment involving Sable, but the build-up of the show on Raw has been quite good. They're finding new ways each week to play up the Undertaker-Kane-Are-They-In-Cahoots angle, which could easily come across as hokey, but the crowd is absolutely eating it up. Are The Undertaker and Kane working together? I guess you'll just have to stick with us to find out. Next week, the WWF officially heads down the highway to hell, which will take us all the way to SummerSlam 1998, and I guarantee you won't want to miss that. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with a commercial which was shown during Monday Night Raw ad breaks around this time and featured WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin, as well as your new WWF European champion D'Lo Brown. Enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Stone Cold Steve Austin for one 800 collect. I'm not talking to you. What did I do? You're so insensitive. Dial zero when you called me last night. I should have dialed one 800 collect. It would have saved me a bundle. How do you think it makes me feel? Next time I use one 800 collect, I didn't mean to hurt you. Me neither. Dial one 800 collect or else.